The year is 1953. The Korean War ends after three years of fighting. Drought plagues the U.S. Midwest, causing natural disaster areas to be declared in 13 states. The Kinsey Report publishes its findings on sexual behavior in the human female. Meanwhile, Hugh Hefner publishes the first issue of Playboy magazine featuring Marilyn Monroe as its cover girl and nude centerfold. And in that year of 1953, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama went to William Inge's Picnic, a play centered around a community of women in a small Kansas town whose loneliness and longings are revealed when a handsome stranger comes to town. My name is Jan Simpson. Welcome to All the Drama, a podcast about the plays and musicals that have won American theater's highest accolade, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. In the decade following World War II, three playwrights dominated Broadway, Tennessee Williams, Arthur Miller, and William Inge. Plays by all three have entered the theatrical canon and are regularly revived both in the U.S. and abroad. But Inge's name isn't as well known today as Williams and Miller's are. Maybe that's because his life was shorter and more tragic. He committed suicide in 1973 when he was just 60. Inge was born on May 3, 1913, in Independence, Kansas. He was the fifth and youngest child of Luther Inge, who worked as a traveling salesman, and Maud Gibson Inge, who earned extra money by renting out rooms in the family home to unmarried school teachers. Young Billy Inge knew he wanted to go into show business from the time he was eight. He had recited a poem in school and he loved the attention it brought him. So he adapted plays from the silent movies he saw, recruited neighborhood kids to play the parts, and put the shows on in his family's garage. Later, he acted in plays all the way through high school, and he majored in speech and drama at the University of Kansas, spending his summer vacations working in a tent show that traveled around the state. He had hoped to go to New York when he graduated in 1935, but he didn't have enough money or enough confidence in his talent. Instead, he worked as a laborer building state highways for two years before he found a job teaching English and drama to high school students. In 1938, he got a master's degree in education and spent the next five years teaching at St. Stephen's College in Columbia, Missouri, where the drama department was headed by Maude Adams, the first American actress to play the boy who wouldn't grow up in the 1905 production of Peter Pan. Finally, in 1943, Inge heard that the theater critic for the St. Louis Star-Times had enlisted in the Army, and he talked himself into the job as an all-around critic, reviewing art exhibits, music performances, movies, and plays. In time, he began to feel that he could write better plays than the ones he was seeing. Luckily, the job also called for him to write feature stories about local artists, which is how he met Tennessee Williams. Williams, just two years older, was in town visiting his family before the pre-Broadway tryout of the Glass Menagerie in Chicago. They hit it off. 
Some people have said they even became lovers. Who knows? Either way, Williams encouraged Inge to write his own play, and he later helped his young friend get the first one he wrote, a one-act called Father Earth from Heaven, staged at Theater 47, the pioneering regional theater company that the actress Margot Jones had recently started in Dallas. But Inge couldn't afford to focus solely on playwriting, and when the critic he'd replaced at the newspaper returned home from the war, Inge went back to teaching. He got a job at Washington University in St. Louis, and while he was there, he wrote, Come Back, Little Sheba. Tennessee Williams had also introduced Inge to his agent, Audrey Wood, and she persuaded the Theater Guild to give Sheba a Broadway production. Inge regularly resorted to alcohol and later drugs when he became too nervous or tense, and although he had periods of sobriety, he battled with alcoholism throughout his life. He said he based Sheba on a couple he met at Alcoholics Anonymous. The play, which opened at the Booth Theater in February of 1950, centers around a recovering alcoholic, the childlike wife he married only because he thought she was pregnant, and the young female student who rents a room in their home. Sheba drew mixed reviews, but it went on to win Tony Awards for its leads, Sidney Blackmer and Shirley Booth, to run for 190 performances, and was sold to the movies for $150,000, which would be well over a million and a half in today's money, and that allowed Inge to write full-time. Three years later came Picnic. Unfolding over just 24 hours, it focuses on five women. Flo, a woman abandoned by her husband, her two daughters, Madge, the town beauty, and Millie, a precocious tomboy, the school teacher, Rosemary, who rents a room in their home, and Helen Potts, their middle-aged neighbor who had been forced to annul her marriage when she was young. All of their lives are disrupted when a sexy drifter named Hal shows up on the morning of the town's Labor Day picnic. The 28-year-old Paul Newman campaigned to play Hal, but the show's director, Joshua Logan, thought Newman was too young. And so Newman ended up making his Broadway debut as Alan, the town rich boy who was dating Madge. Ralph Meeker, who had replaced Marlon Brando and Williams' A Streetcar Named Desire, was cast as Hal. Inge said the play was inspired by the kind of women he grew up knowing. He had originally ended the play with Madge too timid to run off with Hal after she shares a night with him, and instead returning to her job at the local dime store and facing a future in which she inevitably becomes the town slut. But Josh Logan thought that was too depressing, and he pressured Inge to change to a more hopeful ending. Wanting to keep Logan, one of the most successful directors of the day, on board, and also wanting a hit, Inge gave in. But he didn't forgive himself for doing so. A decade later, he rewrote the play with the original ending and called it Summer Brave. But Logan may have gotten the last laugh. That revised version ran for just 18 performances. 
There were only two poets or judges in 1953 when Picnic won the award, and in their recommendation, they both cited what they called the Americanness of the play. They apparently weren't the only ones impressed by that. Picnic also won the New York Drama Critics Circle and the Outer Critics Circle Awards. The Tony that year went to Arthur Miller's The Crucible, but Picnic toured extensively, and local theaters, including the Bucks County Playhouse in Pennsylvania and the Pasadena Playhouse in California, staged their own productions. Josh Logan directed a movie version, starring a slightly too old William Holden as Hal and Kim Novak as Madge, but a perfectly cast Rosalind Russell as Rosemary. Inge used part of the $300,000 he got for the film rights to move into the still prestigious Dakota apartment building on Manhattan's Central Park West. More success followed. Bus Stop opened in 1955 and ran for 478 performances. Dark at the Top of the Stairs, a revamped and longer version of the one act that Margot Jones had done at Theater 47, opened in 1957 and ran for 468 performances. Like Sheba and Picnic, both were also made into movies. But the streak ended there. In 1959, A Loss of Roses, the Broadway debut for Warren Beatty, lasted just 25 performances. Three years later, Natural Affection lasted just 36 performances. And three years after that, Where's Daddy ran for only 22. It wasn't just Inge, tastes were changing. Miller did have a hit with The Price in 1968, but he stumbled with the creation of the world and other business, which ran for only 20 performances in 1972, and he never had another hit on Broadway, except for revivals of his old stuff. Meanwhile, Williams never recovered from his dry spell that began with Outcry, which limped through just 12 performances in 1973. Inge did find a bit of success in Hollywood. His screenplay for Splendor in the Grass won him an Oscar in 1961. But by the 1970s, he had moved to Los Angeles and turned, with only middling success, to publishing a couple of novels. He also returned to teaching with a course in playwriting at UCLA. But what he most wanted to do was write another hit play. And as he despaired that he would ever again achieve the playwriting success that he had known, he became increasingly isolated and emotionally fragile. He had always been closeted about his homosexuality, and that increased his feelings of alienation and loneliness. He did develop a particularly close relationship with the actress Barbara Baxley, but his homosexuality prevented sexual intimacy between them, and he grew jealous when she dated other men. Their friendship broke down when she decided to marry someone else, but they eventually picked it back up again. In her papers at the Library for the Performing Arts, Baxley recalls a final phone conversation between them in which he said, Oh my God, Barbara, I have to kill myself. I can't stand it anymore. I don't want to live anymore. On June 5th, 1973, Inge took an overdose of pills but was discovered and hospitalized. Five days later, on June 10th, he signed himself out of the hospital 
went home and killed himself by carbon monoxide poisoning, closing his garage door and starting the engine of his Mercedes. His sister Helene, with whom he shared the house, found him. Inge left behind some two dozen unpublished plays. They are archived in the William Inge collection that is housed at the community college in his hometown of Independence, Kansas. Also, there are other papers, his personal library, his record collection, and recorded interviews with family members, ex-neighbors, former teachers and colleagues, theater personalities, and others who knew him. The college is also the home of the William Inch Center for the Arts, which hosts an annual theater festival, runs a residency program for young playwrights, and honors established playwrights with its distinguished achievement in the American Theater Award. The most recent recipient for that was Lynn Nottage. Inch himself has turned up as a character in works written by other playwrights. In 1960, Edward Albee wrote the one-act Fam and Yam about an encounter between an up-and-coming playwright, Albee, and one on his way out of fashion, Inge. The 2018 play, The Gentleman Caller, by Philip Dawkins, imagines a sexual encounter between Inge and Tennessee Williams. But, of course, it is for those first four Broadway plays that Inge will be most remembered. Thomas Hishak, a professor of theater arts at Flagler University in St. Augustine, Florida, and the author of the book 100 Greatest American Plays, is a particular fan of Inge's work. And so I asked Tom if he would again join me to talk about the man and his plays. Hi, Tom. Welcome back to Broadway Radio. Thanks. Glad to be here. <laughs> really excited to talk to you about this one because I know you are a fan of William Inge's work. As a matter of fact, in your book of 100 uh, Great American Plays, three of them are his. <laughs> so Correct. how did you first encounter uh, Inge, and what was it about his work that grabbed you? Uh, I think just in reading plays, uh, his three best plays, um, I, I know I read on my own. They weren't part of a class or anything. When I was in high school, I know I read Bus Stop, Picnic, and uh, Come Back Little Sheba, and I was really taken with all of them. Uh, I was living in Ohio, and I was particularly interested in Inge because he is a Midwestern playwright. And there are, you know, so many great American playwrights, but most of them do come. Uh, they may have been born somewhere else, but most of them are New York City-based and and or New England-based. And although he didn't stay in the Midwest, his plays are all about Kansas and Missouri and and uh, the whole Middle America. It's the subject of his plays. It's what he knows best, and I think he's probably, uh, you know, our best playwright for that part of the country. When the Pulitzer judges uh, awarded him uh, the play, they talked about the Americanness uh, of picnics. So, what do you think they meant by that? And and in general, why do you think they gave him the prize? I think most plays uh, are about America, and 
meaning urban, and uh, East Coast, West Coast, maybe, with many, you know, lots of exceptions, where Inge is interested in that huge part of America that is not covered in plays very well. I think they're covered very well in literature. You know, I think there's many great novels uh, about the Midwest and authors who, who, you know, people who concentrated on the Midwest, but not in theater. Uh, the only one I know of, and it came much later, was Lamford Wilson. He was very much, and he was from Missouri, and he was very much interested in not all of his plays, but most of them. So Inge is writing about uh, this middle America that hadn't been covered much. They're not too poor. They're not too rich. They're not too educated. They're not too stupid. They are the middle geographically. They're the middle of America, but I also think they're they're kind of the middle echelon of the American public. And he just knew them very, very well. I think the the feeling you get from Picnic is of of a world that too rarely has been captured in the theater, and specifically for this one, a world of women living in the Midwest without men and finding sexual frustration, loneliness, uh, regret, uh, I think, uh, or anxious to start life, you know, but their life is, is just filled with sisters and mothers and aunts and neighbors and stuff like that. So I think that's unique uh, about the play. The Pulitzer Committee, it's hard to say they were uh, torn, I am sure, between the other big play of that season, and that was The Crucible by Arthur Miller. But The Crucible, especially at that time, today we know it's a classic and it's done all the time, but at that time you could not look at The Crucible without looking at the... the, um, uh, the witch hunts that were going on in Congress and the McCarthy thing. It, you couldn't separate the two. Today, people go see The Crucible, and they don't know anything about McCarthy. They just enjoy The Crucible. But you couldn't do that uh, that in, in the 50s. And I think it's, it was a little too controversial for some of the voters. And Picnic was a, a safer bet. Not that it's a gentle, happy, you know, wonderful play, it's a, it's accurate, it's realistic, but it's not about anything that people can say, oh, that's also political. There's nothing political about a uh, picnic. So I think that's why it, it edged over and uh, uh, won the play, uh, the Pulitzer that year, uh, instead of the Crucible. Crucible's done a lot more today, but Picnic is also still done, I'm glad to say. I've seen several productions, and it still holds up. In Chad- Four big successes right out of the gate. Right. But after Dark at the Top of the Stairs in 1957, it stopped. What do you think happened? I've read those plays, and they are not without merit. Those plays being the ones after. Oh, let's see. The uh, um, i got to get the, the names of the other ones here. Uh, one that I like a lot is The Loss of Roses. I, I think that's a very good play, uh, but it wasn't successful in its uh, initial run. But anyway, uh, so, yeah, Comeback Little Sheba, oh, very popular, Picnic popular, but these later works, not so much. Uh, they are weaker plays. 
there's no question of it. Maybe he is repeating himself a little bit, but you know, for a, for a playwright to have four outstanding plays, you know, is not bad. It's just that they all came together and all at the beginning, you know. So it must have been very, very discouraging. And he was an alcoholic anyway, so I'm sure his life was not pleasant, you know, living through those after-the-glory kind of days. I've also read that he was terribly wounded by a piece that Robert Brewstein, uh, the critic and later head of the Yale Drama School, uh, wrote about Dark at the Top of the Stairs, and I was wondering if you knew anything about that incident. I could just tell you what I know about Brewstein. He was... Uh, very much a champion of alienation, Brecht, uh, political theater, Mm. um, uh, pushing the boundaries, and inches and about any of those. Dark at the Top of the Stairs is a very conventional play. They're all conventional plays. I mean, they, they, you know, there's there's no weird uh, flip through time. There's no narrators. There's no... um, kind of readdressing uh, uh, ideals. There's no surrealism in them. They are all very basic, down-to-earth, realistic dramas and with real people that are very identifiable. They're not eccentric as maybe in Tennessee Williams, you know. And for Brewstein, this was old-fashioned. It was old hat, and I'm sure he did quite a job on it. Darker the Top of the Stairs is a good play. It's not as good as the other three, I don't think. But they're coming from two different directions. I wondered also if taste just changed because Miller and Williams didn't do so well after the 60s either. That's right. Right. It's it's one of the curses of having very successful plays at the beginning of your career and living a long time. <laughs> that that combination is very difficult, and very few playwrights can make that, uh, well, to keep that uh, momentum and everything, but also very rarely do they get a comeback. Elby did. Edward Elby uh, was forgotten and written off, and, you know, he wrote some good plays back then. Nobody was taking Edward Elby seriously, and luckily, near the end of his life, he had three or four really very good plays, and he had a comeback. Tennessee Williams never saw that. Arthur Miller never saw it. Winge never saw it. Did they lose their talent? No. But the, the plays were maybe not as strong. The plays may have reminded people of earlier plays, which they thought were better. It's always the curse. Well, it's not as good as Streetcar Named Desire, you know. Well, very few plays are. So I think Inge fell into that, yeah, that thing of, yeah, he's still writing plays, but you know he's written out, and it's it's a it's a tragic pattern. It's it's I would say I don't know if it's true of novelists as much, uh, but it definitely happens in the theater because success is right there. The show closes. It's not popular. It doesn't get good reviews. It closes. You write a novel that gets bad reviews. It's still there. It's still ready to be discovered. But who discovers plays that close quickly? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you look back. At mid-century theater, there were sort of like three big guns, Arthur Miller, Tennessee Williams, and and William Inge. You're right in that 
Inge's plays do continue to to get done, but his name isn't mentioned. No, it isn't. Why do you what do you, what do you think happened with that? Yeah, because uh, people will recognize the title "Bus Stop," thanks to the movie. Maybe you know the Marilyn Monroe movie. They will recognize "Come Back, Little Sheba." It's an unusual title, and they remember it maybe again from a wonderful movie. And "Picnic" was a very popular movie, but they don't link the uh, the playwright's name with it like they do with yeah with Williams and with uh, Arthur Miller. Uh, I'm not sure why he wasn't a personality. Let's face it, uh, Tennessee Williams was. <laughs> yeah. He was unusual. He was in the news. He was on the talk shows. He was, you know, uh, very much in your face. And Arthur Miller, well, beside the fact of being married to Marilyn Monroe, he was politically active. He was uh, suffered under the communist thing. He was outspoken about his plays and drama and, and liked to lecture and stuff. So they had a visibility. Uh, I don't remember anything of William Inge being in the news. He was quoted in, uh, when his plays would open, they had to do interviews, and he was quoted. But he was never the name that's out there. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's just kind of unusual. But I'm glad to say that his three titles are well-known because of the movies. Do you think the fact that he wasn't out there as much had something to do with his being closeted about his sexuality? I know so little about that personal part of him, except that he was an alcoholic. He maybe wanted it that way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tennessee Williams didn't. You know, he wanted to be outspoken. But I, I, I couldn't say for sure, but I would guess that his idea of being true to yourself and being, you know, what you are uh, was very different from a Tennessee Williams point of view. He was probably quietly frustrated, and which, which is where the alcoholism comes in. And that's the only personal thing that people kind of, you know, knew about. Uh, the rest of it was probably very well hidden. I've wondered why, because you do have Tennessee Williams, but he isn't the only one. There was Truman Capote, Gore Vidal, oh, yeah. who were, I don't know, shouting it from the rooftops, but they were fairly open about their sexuality. I think it's part of Inge's middle America, that Midwestern thing. You don't you don't draw attention to that part of yourself. You know, I think it's, it's the way you're raised, it's the way people look at things. I think there's a lot more denial at the time, especially uh, in, in the Midwest, about sexual things. You don't talk about them. You don't make a point about them. And I think that's in all of his plays, you know, that sexual repression is something you just don't talk about. But you see it in all of his plays, you know. Um, and some characters more obviously than others. So I think that's a Midwestern thing, that no, it's not good manners, it's not smart. And there's, it's there in his plays, you know, uh, the uh, little touches of possibly homosexuality in, in uh, Sheba and Dark at the uh, Top of the Stairs and stuff. But, um, but it's real subtle. But in Picnic, which I think is his most sexual play, it's thieves with sex. Uh, the women in this play being 
taunted and tempted by just pure male sexuality, you know, with this hell comes into town and he's just not like any other guy. He is dangerous. He's attractive. Uh, he's uh, sexually appealing, even to like little old ladies, you know, the little neighbor <laughs> next door yeah. is just as taken with him as young Marge is. I think it runs through the, the whole play. Well, whether or not people remember the name and personality of William Inge, these plays have survived. And oh, yeah. Uh, once again, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us about one of these uh, Pulitzer Prize winners. I enjoyed it. Thank you. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll come back next time. And if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, please send them to me at jan at broadwayradio.com.